Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out tonight and uh, being a part of our evening service. Uh, really good turnout this evening. Uh, tonight, I'm finishing up our study on the uh, philosophy of our particular church, and I'm going full circle in what uh, I talked about. I'm picking up again where I started uh, so that we can kind of bring closure to this particular subject, and that is that the church is to be understood primarily as a family. One Puritan said that the family was the church's nursery, that the uh, family is that which uh, is incubatory, if you will, for the life of the church. And the church is first and foremost a family. We learn spiritual truths from our earthly families, and our earthly families profit from the spiritual truths that we learn. Uh, I'm going to give a, a number of examples tonight in the scriptures how the, uh, the scripture uses the, the family as a metaphor and as a lesson for us as to how we ought to respond to one another in life of the church, and vice versa, the scripture uses our relationship to God to teach us how we are to relate to our families and to be involved in our lives in a family setting. Certainly there are dysfunctional families, and likewise there are dysfunctional churches. There are churches that don't function the way that God has intended, just as there are families that don't function in the way in which God had intended for families to function. So we want to have healthy families, and we want to have a healthy church. We want to have a healthy church, and we want to have a health, healthy family. And those two things are interrelated. So we have a very family-oriented church, and intentionally so. Uh, not just in our activities, but in our very worship. Uh, one of the things that makes our church unique is that we do not have a children's church. And that many times is surprising to visitors uh, that we don't have a children's church. So let me ask you, why don't we have a children's church? Is it because, number one, we never thought of it? That we were in the dark and we didn't realize that there is such a thing as a children's church? Is it because, number two, we can't staff it, that uh, we couldn't find teachers for a children's church, or is there an intention behind it? Is it purposeful? And the answer is it's purposeful. Uh, we want the children to be sitting with their parents in church and uh, learning right alongside. And yes, uh, even though we have a, a pretty uh, in-depth message, uh, children can comprehend to some degree, and we've had children make professions of faith uh, in our worship services. But more than that, it's important that our children are integrated in the life of our, our worship. One of the responsibilities that I had when I was at uh, the Reading Bible Fellowship Church as, as an assistant was uh, I would visit families, and one of the th concerns that the uh, 
church had at that time. They uh, had an evening service. They, they don't have an evening service now, but at that time they did. But young families didn't come. And children didn't come to the evening service. And so the elders said, find out why they aren't coming to the evening service. So I went to a number of uh, homes of those with uh, young children, and I said, why don't you come to the evening service? And their response was, there's nothing for the children. Uh, they were used to a children's church, and uh, so that that's where the, the children gathered while the adults were in church, and at night there was no children's church, so there's nothing for the children. That was the mindset. This was not planned. <laughs> it didn't need to be planned because the children are a part of the life of our church. And they sang tonight. And in our Thanksgiving service, when people were standing up and giving thanks and giving their testimonies, children were coming to the microphone. And they are giving thanks. That Their worship is an important part of the life of our church, that we understand that integration. Tonight, the teens took offering, as they do every Sunday night. Uh, oftentimes, they're ministering in music, and uh, not a teen, but a young adult uh, played uh, the piano tonight, accompanied us, the worship team, all to say that we want to be a family, and we want to incorporate the entire family in our worship together. So as we think about this relationship of family to church and church to family, I'd like to, you to think with me of a number of examples in the scriptures. The first is the requirement of elders to rule well their own households. We have rule by elder. Uh, that is what the Word of God teaches, uh, that particular form of government. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, giving requirements of an elder, it says this, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children Submissive. Now, why is it important that elders are individuals that have demonstrated an ability to rule their households well and to keep their children in submission? We don't have to wonder about the answer to that question, for it comes in the very next verse. 1 Timothy 3 5 says, for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If a person can't lead his family, how can that person lead the church? So in that example for the requirements of an elder, we find out that it's important that an elder has the ability to rule his individual family so that he can oversee the church family. That's the whole point, that the elder is to be the father figure in the life of the church. He is to play the role that a parent would play uh, in a family. 
So as people are matured in their faith and are equipped to be an elder, so too they are being equipped to be a better father, to be a better parent. The more godly you are, the better parent you will be. The better parent you are, the more godly you will be. The two feed upon each other, and it is intended to be so in the scriptures. Then we have the imagery of God as our father. And we learn how to be good earthly fathers for, by emulating our heavenly father. And in turn, our children and we learn lessons about our heavenly father by being better earthly fathers. Again, a correlation. Let me give you some examples. Lessons concerning our Heavenly Father and the way in which He provides for us. In Luke chapter 1, verses, uh, excuse me, in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, it reads as follows What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, Will he give him a scorpion? Paraphrased, will an earthly father give us what's bad for us? No. No. Uh, earthly father is not going to give us what's bad for us, nor will a heavenly father. Uh, one of the issues about prayer uh, that people often have is uh, what is God obligated himself to do when it comes to prayer. What are his, his promises concerning prayer? It's a very common thought that as long as you have faith, you will receive anything you ask of God. That the operative element is faith. That's what's required. And that God obligates himself in that he promises us that if you ask in faith, you will receive. What do we learn of value from the illustration that's just given uh, in um, Luke chapter 11, verse 11? Well, it comes from an earthly father. If you ask him, an earthly father, uh, for a fish, is he going to give you a serpent? The answer is no. He's not going to give you what is bad for you. <clears throat> When I was a child, uh, my brother, who is nine years older than I, uh, received a gift. He was 16 years old. And for his birthday, he received a 22 caliber rifle. It was a pump. It was a Winchester. It was a beauty. And when he got that rifle, uh, I decided that that'd be great for me. I'm seven. And I said to my parents, when they asked me, what do you want for my birthday? I said, a rifle just like that. I believed that they had the ability to provide it. They had the ability to provide it. They were loving, caring parents. I said, I want the rifle. Guess what happened? I didn't get it. 
I didn't get it. It was only wise of them. It was loving of them. It was inappropriate for this seven-year-old child to receive a rifle no matter how badly they wanted it. We have a loving and gracious Heavenly Father that withholds from us things that we pray for that are harmful to us. James says, ye have not because ye ask not, and ye ask and receive not because you ask amiss. You ask for the wrong things. It's not about how much faith you have. It's about the appropriateness of what we pray for. And so we need to pray according to the will of God. We learn about, a lot about our Heavenly Father from our earthly relationships. And we learn a lot about our earthly relationships from our Heavenly Father. But what is good for us, our Heavenly Father delights in giving to us. Luke eleven thirteen. the next verse says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you want to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to be closer to him, if you want to overcome sin, that's something that he delights in. And he will generously bestow that upon us. For he is loving and he is generous. Another personal illustration that doesn't have to do with family, but has to do with the church. When I was at the Reading Bible Fellowship Church, it uh, just so happened that uh, I was attending a seminary and uh, I graduated while on staff at the Reading Bible Fellowship Church. And the Board of Elders, being very generous and kind, approached my wife and said they would like to get me a graduation gift that they were going to present to me at an evening service. And they said, what would he like to have? What does he want? A 22 caliber? No, no, no. It wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> Uh, what, what would he like to have? Well, it turns out that the pastor previous to me that had the same position that I now occupied also graduated from seminary while he was on staff, and uh, he'd asked for a stereo, and the church bought him a stereo. They asked my dear wife, what would your husband like? She said, a book. And uh, she had no idea what they were intending to spend. And at that time, there still is a CBD catalog. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, it's a Bible bookstore catalog. And uh, I had circled a number of books that I was wanting to purchase and to read. And so she made a list out of what I had circled in the catalog and put them in different price categories from inexpensive to medium priced to pretty expensive sets because she didn't know how much they wanted to spend and she gave the list. Well, the elders told me that when they saw the list, they were ecstatic, that it wasn't a stereo, but it was something that would benefit the ministry. And they decided that they were gonna purchase everything on the list. It was extremely, extremely generous. And they came out with this huge number of books 
that they had purchased for my graduation. They were generous because they were pleased with what was asked. That's the way our Heavenly Father is. He's generous and bestows freely when he's pleased with what we ask. There is also a, another imagery in the scripture that goes beyond this aspect of provision, and that is in disciplining us. In the book of Hebrews, probably well familiar with the passage, it says this, starting with Hebrews 12, verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are approved of him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So here's the illustration to help us understand God's discipline of us, it talks about an earthly father. And an earthly father disciplines his children out of love. At least we hope that they would. And uh, you know that old adage, as a parent uh, administers discipline, uh, this is going to hurt me more than you. Well, I'm not so sure. but. The idea here is that uh, it's painful. It's painful. Uh, that God, when he disciplines us, disciplines us out of love for our well-being, for our benefit. Hebrews goes on to say this, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. So now there's a contrast between our earthly fathers and our heavenly father in the way in which our heavenly father is far superior to any of us as earthly fathers. For it says there, we respect our earthly fathers even though they're not perfect. And even though sometimes they discipline us not for our good, but actually for their own selfishness. Have you ever lost your temper with your child just because you were irritable? Just because you were tired? And they really hadn't done anything that was worthy of the kind of discipline that came down upon them just because you were fed up. God never disciplines us in that way. It's always for our good. But you see, the better our earthly father, the better our understanding of our heavenly father. And the better understanding of our heavenly father, the better earthly father I'm going to be. It is sad when a person has had an earthly father that has abused them, mistreated them, or even perhaps sexually assaulted them. 
When a person goes through that, the concept of a heavenly father is distorted. And many times those, those people really struggle spiritually with that metaphor because they're thinking of their earthly father and the way in which they despise them. And now they think of a heavenly father. So the kind of fathers that we are really help in a spiritual realm. And the more godly we are, the better earthly fathers we are going to be. And then, of course, there's the whole imagery in the scriptures of being brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ and the way that we are to relate to one another as brothers and sisters, which, again, is built on the family metaphor of brothers and sisters and how they are to get along. Uh, we are to treat one another the way earthly brothers and sisters are to treat each other. And if we treat our earthly brothers and sisters the way we treat our spiritual brothers and sisters, we'll be better earthly brothers and sisters. They go hand in hand. They feed upon each other. There is this mutual development. So the family ideal in the church is absolutely essential for our spiritual well-being and for our true earthly familial relationships. And then, of course, we have the extended analogy in the scriptures. I say extended because it's found throughout the word of God, and that is of the relationship of um, ourselves to God in a marital context. In the Old Testament, the picture was Israel was the wife of God. In the New Testament, the picture is that the church is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is developed in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 22 and following, it says, Wives, submit your to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body himself is Savior. So it starts off with talking about this relationship of husband and wife and how that relationship is to be uh, developed and how that is in keeping with the relationship of Christ and the church. In that relationship, we are the ones that are being submissive to the head, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Goes on to say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it might be holding without blemish. Here we are to learn for Christ's love for the church. There are profound theological truths that are wrapped up in that imagery, if you just think about it for a moment. You know, people struggle with the aspect of a, of a particular atonement, of Jesus Christ dying for his people. But that's what the Word of God teaches us. But it isn't hard to understand when you understand the analogy. When it says, husbands, love your wives, we understand that the Scripture teaches us that we are to love everyone, are we not? 
We're even to love our enemies. But we can readily understand that the love that we have for our wives is to be far greater than the love that is to be had for our enemies. And even the love that we are to have for our brothers and sisters. That there is a unique love, there's a unique responsibility, there is a unique duty. We enter into uh, vows that talk about how we are going to be committed to one another till death do us part, and how we're going to be faithful to one another, forsaking all others and cleaving only unto the spouse, the word of God says, and the thou says. So there is a unique and precious relationship that exists between uh, a husband and his wife that is used in the scripture to talk about the relationship of Christ to the church who gave himself for the church. So while he loves the world, he uniquely gave himself to us, for us, we who belong to him, we who are his bride. It is great spiritual truth. Goes on to say, in the same way, husbands love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm speaking that which refers to Christ and the church. So there is this truth of the relationship of Christ to the church that mirrors the relationship of husband to wife. So that our marriages are informed by our understanding of Christ. Our marriages are stronger the more we understand the relationship of Christ in the church. And the better our marriages, the easier it is to understand the relationship of Christ in the church. They go hand in hand. And one of the failures, I think, in church today is that's being lost because there isn't the proper emphasis on family. The, the family doesn't worship together. The, the family is isolated. Children are going one way. Parents are going another way. And there is a, a lack of tolerance if you will, in the church. You know, it's not always easy to be uh, in a church service where there are little children. Kids cry. Hopefully, they're younger children, but, but they cry. They cry. I'll tell you a story, true story. Won't tell you who it was. But, but one of our pastors, in a morning church service, there was a, a child that was crying. He came down out of the pulpit, came to the mother, picked up the child, and carried the child to the nursery. He was making a statement. 
I don't think particularly a good statement, but he's making a statement. It makes a statement that we're having crying children in church. Now, I'm not saying that it might not be good to take them out when they're crying, but the point is that a part of a family is to recognize and appreciate children. Unsolicited. I really appreciated Mike's comment tonight of how people were beaming and smiling when the children were standing up front. You see, we all should take pride. We should all be delighted. We should be as excited when each other's child is growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as much as we would our own child. As Sunday school teachers, we should want to see those children come to faith as much as we desire our own children to come to faith. We are to be a true family of God and to work intentionally at being that family. And so it's more important to us for the children to participate than it is to have all of our ducks in order and have uh, absolute quiet in the church. And let me just say, go on record, I think most of you are aware that once I get started, you could almost burn this place down and it wouldn't affect me. I'm in my own zone when I'm preaching. I don't hear babies. I don't hear coughs. I don't hear disruptions. People tell me afterwards what happened. I'm just totally oblivious. So never worry about distracting me because it's not going to happen. Uh, that's just the mind that God gave me. and That's good for some things and bad for others. But um, I get far afield and now I forgot what I wanted to say. There's something else about children. Um, oh boy, I wish I wouldn't have done that because now I can't remember what else I wanted to say. But this, this whole, whole aspect, oh, of um, wanting children to participate. One of the tensions that exists in a church has to do with quality of worship, for lack of a better term, professionalism. How good does a person have to be in order to participate? Um, how skilled? Do they have to be? You know, some churches uh, really want a top-notch worship service. They want to have the very best music that money can buy. And I say that literally. I have a nephew who is a uh, jazz uh, saxophonist, and he is of world quality. Uh, he played with uh, Trombone Shorty, who is uh, probably the world's best uh, 
jazz trombonist at this period of time. My nephew toured around the world with him for, for four years. Uh, he now teaches uh, jazz uh, trombone at the University of uh, New Orleans. And anyway, uh, quite the musician. He plays for a very large megachurch jazz band that uh, does their morning uh, praise time in the morning worship service. He plays and leaves. Doesn't even stay for the church service. He's hired to come and to play because they want to have the best music possible. Well, I think we ought to try to do our best for the Lord. I think it, it's good to, to try to be as excellent as we can be. I think we should strive, but not at the expense of using people that have less than world quality abilities. There's a place, all trying to do their best, but there's a place as a family to let those with lesser abilities and talents use those talents to their best of ability to bring honor and glory to God. I hope we never lose that. Yes, we want to put the best foot forward. Yes, we want to have the best musical program we want to be. Yes, we want to be attractive to those that come, but not at the expense. Not at the expense of saying, ah, but you're not good enough to be used of God. But we promote one another. And most importantly, that we give people the opportunity to develop, to grow, to equip them, to enable them, to provide them the opportunity so that they feel comfortable and being able to minister before others, so they are able to hone their skills, so that they become more proficient and have greater opportunity for service. It is that family life of the church that I'm trying to describe. That is really central to who we are and explains an awful lot of what we do and why we do it. Got a little bit of time. I'm, I'm ending here purposefully uh, for any thoughts, comments, uh, issues that anybody wants to raise in that whole concept of of uh, the church as a family, the family as a church. If I don't, if you don't hear any, there's other areas I can go. <laughs> One of the things that, you know, is, is nifty uh, is that the church family really does create also families. You know, um, we've had some marriages lately of families in the church where their children are married, okay? Again, it wasn't planned, but Stevie Herb led us in uh, prayer tonight, who is married to Mackenzie Sadison, 
who both grew up in this church and developed a relationship that is both spiritual and physical. A relationship that will help them in both their spiritual and physical lives, in their relationship to the church and their relationship to each other. And I can point out others. That is illustrative of the kind of interaction that's supposed to take place in the life of the church. I have a son-in-law on staff, family, and yet developing in the life of the church. And we go on and on and on about these relationships that are so significant, so important of spiritual families and physical families, and they're coming together to profit both the church and the family. Any, anything anybody got, got to say? Thank you. Anybody have anything else? All right, if not, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for each one who's gathered tonight. We thank you for our families. We thank you for our church family. Lord, I, I pray that everyone would feel apart and feel welcomed, cared for, that there'd be a legitimate concern. And Lord, I pray for our families as there is so much attacking the family today, guard and keep our marriages. Guard and keep our children. Help them to continue to walk with you. Continue to bless them as they are a part of the church. Bless them in the life of the church. Bless them apart from the church. Oh Lord, help us in this reciprocal benefit May, through our families, we learn more about you. And as we learn more about you, strengthen our families and bring them in accordance to your will. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And we are dismissed.